Hello everybody and welcome to the 51st episode of the Alien vs Predator Galaxy podcast. This is regular host Aaron Percival, or as you may know me better, Corporal Hicks. And I'm sorry but, you know, the other regular voices aren't joining us today. There's no Ridgetop, there's no Xenomorphin or Omega Morph. Because they're just not as dedicated fans as me. They haven't read the Alan Dean Foster Alien Covenant novelization. Much to, you know, all our dismay. So instead, I'm joined by another voice that you should be a bit familiar with. I tap him up occasionally when I need some backup. Because I can, you know, I can generally count on this guy to um, have taken the interest in that kind of thing. And it is my real world buddy, Chevy. Hey guys, how you doing? If you want to tell Chevy how you're doing, just... You know, feel free to drop us a message afterwards. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's pretty obvious what we're talking about, and it is going to be Alan Dean Foster's novel. And as well as that, after me and Chevy have finished, there's going to be a pre-recorded interview that I conducted with the author, with Alan Dean Foster himself, after we've done nattering. It's about 40 minutes long, and hopefully it's one that you'll all enjoy. Uh, I enjoyed recording it. Chev has already listened to it, and I think he said he liked it. Yeah, it was pretty good. So hopefully you guys do as well. Before we do start talking about the book, I think it'd be pretty helpful for folk to know how you feel about the, um, the actual film. So, Chevy, do you just want to give us a quick rundown of your thoughts on Covenant? Yeah, sure. So, obviously, me and you went to go and see it together with your dad. Several times. Yeah. Uh, Yep. Well, just the first time, if you remember, though, I, I came out of that and I, I, I just didn't know how to feel. <laughs> I remember sending you like loads and loads of messages going, I just don't know how to feel about this film. It's like the first half is like, yeah, I'm on board. And then David shows up and then I don't know what I feel kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, I, it sounds like things that's quite a few people's uh, opinion. But I must admit, like the second time round, I did manage to enjoy it more. Obviously, there's there's the the, the law changing aspects that raise an eyebrow. Let's say, <laughs> one way to put it. Yeah, uh, but I, th- I think really, me and you, we we have very similar opinions that we we enjoy it, we don't love it, we don't hate it. Although it sounds like you um, you're in the camp of the the first thirds, all right, and then you you know when David shows up is when you weren't too fussed. I must admit, it lost me the first time round. It lost me a bit. With, with David, but the second time round, I would say I, I enjoyed the second third as well, and then it was just the last bit that I don't like. <laughs> mm. So basically, when the alien shows up, it's, it's like, no. Yeah, just to reiterate, you know, I... <laughs> you wouldn't think it from my last podcast, actually, but I did actually enjoy Covenant. I really liked it up until, like, the last third of the film, when, when the alien shows up. That's when I have issues with it. But Otherwise, I, I really dug it. I, I did really like it. Um, I enjoyed it more than Prometheus. I'd probably place it fourth in my favourites of the films. And I say fourth, it doesn't sound very well, does it? But Alien, Aliens and Alien 3 are all tied for first place for me. So I'd rate <laughs> it just after those. I would also rate it fourth. There you go. But I will say, though, although I didn't like the the last third, I will say that there's a few scenes in there like... Uh, one in particular that really stands out for me was where the alien walks into the terraforming bay, and I was like, "That's alien isolation." Mm. It looked 
looked menacing and creepy, it and it's just a shame it looks OCG, whether it was. Yeah. but I did like to enjoy how mega aggressive it was as well. Like I've never seen one just that aggressive. I think it felt very Alien 3 in that manner. Yes. Yeah. You know, the, the creature in, in the third film is very... Yeah, I, was, I would say that was aggressive as well, yeah. Although, I, you know, if I could go back, I do think about this actually, about rewriting Alien just as an exercise in fun. Um, I would make it so that the the creature in the third one kidnapped everybody rather than um, rather than killed them outright. He'd kidnap them and start his own little hive ready for the queen. It's more creepy, right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I kind of would have liked to have seen a bit more behaviour like that from you know from Covenant as well. I I think that's one of the real creepy things about the alien that just sort of disappears. Yeah, and is like is it using them for food? Is it is it egg morphing them? Is it cocoon? You just don't know. That's part of the uh, the creep factor. I'd agree with you. But to steer a bit more on topic, we're gonna be talking, like we said, Alan Dean Foster's novelization. So Chevy, have you read his other ones? I have. I've read all of his that he's done. In general, do you like his other other novelizations? In general, I tend to prefer the books over the films in quite a few ways. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I do like uh, I, I do like some of these extra scenes that just I don't know. I guess in the book you have more time to develop certain scenes with pacing and characters and such. So it, it's for example, in Alien, uh, there's a, a part in the book where the alien goes into the I think it's the, is it the kitchen the and food, it, it's the eating food, food. Yeah, yeah, that's it. The food storage. It, it's they barely miss it. They, they try, I think they try and flamethrow it, don't they? Something. I think it ends up going yeah. back in the vents, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously Dallas dies slightly differently. It's just nice because sometimes in the books, I think you tend to get scenes that may have been alternate. Mm. So it's just nice just to have that those extra avenues to explore. I think I, I just really enjoy them. Mm. See, I will always encourage people to read the novelizations of films that they really enjoy, primarily because of all those differences for i suppose for a while you know before dvds and um, blu-rays and stuff it was probably the easiest way for people to have found out about um, alternate scenes deleted scenes whatever i don't suppose it's as massively prevalent or as important to read the novelizations to experience those kind of things nowadays because you know it's pretty bog standard feature on on home releases yeah so it's kind of hard to i don't know it's not hard it's not like the main selling point of reading novelizations these days, I don't think. A good example would be Resurrection. The book is way better than the film. I, I completely agree. Because it loses it loses a lot of what doesn't make the film work. So Jeanette's style and um, his director of photography, his name I, I can't remember, their visual style is completely gone. The acting is completely gone. So we strip back yep. to uh, Whedon's dialogue. As well as obviously what the um, what the authors did. Now, Resurrection wasn't done by Alan Dean Foster. Just the AC Crispin. Yeah, AC, the late AC Crispin. Um, she unfortunately died a few years back. I think I can't remember. But that the first three novelizations by Foster, I love them. I do like reading them. Um, but unlike you, I wouldn't have said I preferred them over the films. No. Okay. But no, I'd I'd still say go and read them, and I still enjoy reading them every now and again to experience those those differences. You know, experience Dallas turning off the beacon in the derelict, and you know, the, for the whatever wacky um, editor reasons, the uh, lack of swear words in Aliens. 
<laughs> Still tickles me. Get away me. from her, you. <laughs> just doesn't quite work the same, but you know it's it's fun. And Alien Three, you know, in the first half of that book, there's so much backstory on the facility. You know, so much added world building in there. I I love them. I love reading them, but I wouldn't prefer them over the films. A Resurrection is a completely different story because it takes away so much of what I don't like in the films and it's an alternative experience and it's what I find to be a much better one. Which leads us quite nicely into a broad overview of Covenant's novelisation. I prefer it over the film. Now, it's not because it lacks Ridley Scott's visual style or, you know, certain acting, but it's purely because of what I thought Foster would do coming into the book. So Alan Dean Foster had a really bad time writing Alien 3. So by the time that he came to that film, obviously, he'd done the first two. And he was he's pretty tightly associated with Alien. You know, he's he's up there with the likes of Steve Perry and Stephanie Perry, as far as I'm concerned, in association with Alien literacy. And he came to 3. He'd been working on these films. He was invested as not only a job, but as a fan. You know, he really likes these films. And in number three, he had real issues with the direction that the film was going. And he tried to um, fix certain elements. And I say fix with quotation marks because I'm sure not everybody will agree with him in those regards, but it was to do with like Newton Hicks's fate. Now, I understand that a lot of people obviously disliked how they were handled in, in Alien 3, you know, the killing off that early. And he tried to save them but still keep them out of the story and the editors weren't having it or was it the editors no was it the producers i can't remember which way around it was but the powers that be weren't having it and i knew going into covenant that he would be approaching it in the same manner as a professional working on a job but as a fan who would be having his own concerns now I also knew that he would try and fix these. How successful it would be in any attempt to fix any problems that he found, I didn't know. You know, it was it's like I said, a, a pretty well known point of contention for his work on the third film, third book. And as you'll find out later in the interview, anyway, um, after we're done, and if you read the book yourself, you'll know that he does fix again in quotation marks, problems that a lot of people had with the, with Alien Covenant, myself included, and I'm pretty sure you as well. Yeah, it actually made Covenant film worse <laughs> for me, because <laughs> I was like, why isn't this stuff in the film? <laughs> but yeah, you're right, he, he does go about trying to fix so much stuff that I didn't like about the film. Chevy, tell, tell us specifics, What what does he fix for you? So, I mean, I, I wasn't so bothered about them going out onto the planet without spacesuits and stuff like that. But he, he, he does address that. I mean, okay, it's kind of, uh, let's say, hand wavium with Walter going out onto the planet. And he, he's got this device and he, he scans the atmosphere. He, he, don't they describe it as sterile? A sterile atmosphere? Mm-hmm. Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. It's just things like, like that, that that fix things. I mean, I, I don't know... If you if you want me to go into David's lab at the moment, yeah, yeah, tell tell us. Yeah, so Dave, a lot of people don't like the fact that David created the xenomorphs. Well, in the novel, he doesn't. 
he's when he's showing Oram around uh, the lab, he actually turns around to him and says, "Oh, well, I'm, I'm I think the engineers." main goal was to to create these and it starts describing these tall menacing black steel like uh, looking creatures that he already has in this laboratory in the background yeah, yeah. i mean it's it's clearly an alien and then during the uh it, i think it's just after chest burst sequence is it's like a like a monologue about him saying that he's he's genetically modified the alien so it's got a faster growth rate mm-hmm. which which then fixes all the law problems because it's genetically modified to to grow faster yeah so it's like okay fine at least it's explained it's not like this this five like a click of fingers and it's gone from a chest burster to fully grown and it's you know it's, it's stuff like that that it just makes it so much better and more enjoyable and the funny thing is when when you put it in those two terms with those two sequences somehow making it feel like a much better experience overall it's quite funny isn't it really because it just shows how small i suppose the problems actually are but how big of a deal they are to they are yeah to to people to to fans to us because like like you those fix you know what i'm not i don't have that big of an issue with the the spacesuit thing because i i presume that they they test i mean he actually says in the book as well that mother scans the the planet and finds nothing hmm. so walter then goes out to the planet and also finds nothing it's it's, dub- it's doubling down on it for the people that hated in prometheus and uh, Covenant. Yeah. <laughs> and don't get me wrong i i completely understand why people would have an issue with that it's just personally it doesn't doesn't get on my tits as much uh, but the, the alien thing uh, david being the um, the creator of the alien, that does really bother me because yeah. it takes a lot away from the mystery. The not necessarily the mystery, the the appeal and and the allure of the alien. It's not only that; it erases uh, two of the the more recent canonical novels. To be honest, I think it takes away all of them. Would it take away? No, it wouldn't take away River of Pain. It depends where they go with it. So, um, so if if David ends up being the guy no. in the space. I, I know. <laughs> if it ends up being a recent crash that's not actually Stop giving him my got engineers on it, I'm sorry. <laughs> the, then yes, that that would remove River of Pain as well. <sighs> so, you know that gets rid of so much history and even the recent stuff that's come out. And yep. something as simple as David's refining the engineers' work is. It, it does wonders. It does wonders for the experience, especially yep. for the people that found the law stuff to be the most. Because then it doesn't matter, because from that point, it can then split and do its own thing. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't matter then, from that point. Oh, it makes me so sad. <laughs> but we, we have the novels now. <laughs> it, it is, of course, worth pointing out that the novelizations are just ancillary stuff. You know, yeah. just because ADF says in the novel that David didn't create the aliens wholesale doesn't mean that it's canon, doesn't mean that's where Ridley Ridley isn't obliged to, to use that going forward. Yeah. It's just an alternate experience. Now, the only alternates in the book aren't just those few bits. There is one other... I would say one other significant... Well, maybe two. Um, there's a couple of other significant differences 
between the film and the novelization. And the next one, I think, is the Neomorph and the Xenomorph fighting. Uh, before that one, uh, the Neomorph that kills Rosie actually hounds them pretty much all the way back to the necropolis, oh, yes. which I thought was pretty cool. Mm, just to keep that pressure on them. Yeah, it was basically testing the defences, testing the reactions and things like that, just wondering how it can get close. Or at least that's how ADF puts it across. Mm. And it, uh, it works, I think. Probing them. Yeah, it, that, was, that was creepy. And it makes sense for them running like full pelt and not caring about all those dead bodies on the floor. Mm. And I think it would have been nice to have had that in the film uh, because, you know, something about Alien is that even if the first film, even if the alien isn't there, its presence is still is still felt, you know, it's always... It's always close. Mm, you know, like when um, Ripley's, you know, telling Ash to go with, with Parker when he's going to refill the stuff, it's because the alien's still out there. So having the Neo, or one of the Neomorphs constantly on the tail means that there's still that presence of, of an antagonist. I mean, obviously David's there, but they don't know at that point that he's a bad guy. But with that neomorph being there, then there would still be that, you know, that shadow looming. Yeah. There's lots of minor. <laughs> we could go on forever about lots of other minor differences, actually. <laughs> I mean, there's there's other things like um, early on in the book when it's Walter alone on the ship, Mother has <laughs> something of a personality. She's not just. I say a personality. Yes. You know, you know I what I mean. That. She she. Yeah. She, you know. I don't want to say bantering. I don't want to use these human terms, but she, it feels like she she is more than just a computer repeating certain yes. words and catchphrases and stuff like that. And there's an early um, an early section where Walter comes and offers Daniel's um, a joint. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was a bit like what? Okay. <laughs> that that is. I I don't ask him about it in the interview like the other stuff, but I did ask him after the fact on emails. If that was something he'd added or if it was from the script. Because when we were following the film in when it was in production, you know, catching all those little tidbits and trying to arrange it all into a big picture, there was an article about uh, Ridley Scott requesting a shit ton of marijuana plants for use on the film. <laughs> okay. And <laughs> so I had, to, I had to ask him after um, when somebody pointed it out, you know, reminded me on the forums. I had to ask him if that was something he'd put in there or if it was something in the script, and it was something that was scripted. Well, okay. Um, whether it was filmed, I don't know, but it, it was scripted. Um, so there's little things like that as well. Uh, Daniel's and her dream sequences in there as well. Uh, if you've been following some of the post-release interviews, Ridley mentioned uh, an additional deleted scene with Branson with... Shit, what's his name? James Franco. There we go. Um a dream sequence with him and Daniels in an apartment talking about the lake, uh, the cabin by the lake. That That's in the book. So many little, tiny little bits. Uh, but the big, the last two big things are the, the Neomorph and Xeno fight. Yep. In the test screenings from October time, this fight wasn't in there. There was a separate sort of conflict where you still had both Neo and Alien on screen at the same time but they're rushing Daniels and Lope from different directions. So Daniels is shooting at the Neomorph, Lope's shooting at the alien. And Daniels takes out the Neomorph in the end as it's rushing towards them. I think that scene would have been good to have left in, actually, just to be able to feature both creatures on screen 
sort of at, at the same, same time. time. But I think it would have also bolstered Daniel's um, badass turn on the on the loader, the crane thing. You know, when the alien's on board and she's like, fuck this shit, and goes and grabs the gun. I think having her actually put down the Neomorph would have been a... You know, just yeah. an extra boost to her confidence and, you know, her willingness to go out there and do that. But from a sort of nerdy, I love my creatures fighting and I love my scary creatures on the screen kind of thing, it would have been cool to have seen this fight scene that ADF had in the book. Where, again, it's Lope and Daniels, uh, they're trying to get back to the loader, and the Neomorph shows up, and then the Xeno shows up, and they sort of charge, and then they fight each other rather than fight the crew. And they did attempt to film this scene, apparently, um, but it, they couldn't pull it off um, effects-wise, I do believe. They were, you know, for all we like to rag on Coven about the, the CG painting, they did film a lot in camera and supplement it, I suppose, you could right. say. Um, so they did apparently um, attempt to film this fight sequence between the two creatures. That would have been cool. Mm. Um, but in lieu of that, we can read the book and experience it in the book. I mean, it's. Yep. I think it was. It's a fairly short sequence, though, wasn't it? I it mean, is fairly short. Uh, the Neomorph pretty much just gets disemboweled pretty quick. <laughs> it doesn't stand much chance against the alien. Not at all, but you know, it, it would have been fun to have seen that. Another nice addition, though, to the end of that particular scene is Walter, with quotation marks, is running down from the temple, shooting the alien hmm. with his rifle, which kind of reinforces that, well, perhaps it is Walter, because why would David be shooting it? And we, and we don't get any sort of pause at the top, sort of telegraphing, you know, telegraphing any connection. Or any dubious nope. behaviour. Which, you know, that segues us nicely again onto the last major difference. Which is that they don't find out that Walter isn't David. Daniels doesn't. We do. But it's it's revealed in a slightly different manner. Do you want to tell folk? Yeah, so he, he waits for her to go off into, into cryosleep. And then all of a sudden he switches his voice... And it says something about using authorization code, David, blah, blah, blah. And to me, that is much more effective than, than how it was in the film. I don't know. I just thought it was a bit more uh, it's a bit more creepy in a way. I, I, don't, I don't know. I suppose from, from Daniel's point of view, I think knowing that you're about to drop off into sleep, it's kind of a bit worse. But uh, I, I do like how he just doesn't reveal himself. So, yeah. I actually liked... The films end because I'm one of those morbid fuckers that loves the start of Alien <laughs> Three. I can understand why both both ways would suit. To be fair, mm. it's just I think it bookends the film nicely. You know, it starts on I say it starts on when the film itself starts. It starts on a catastrophic note. You know, uh, you have the Dan, uh, you have the captain dying in his cryo tube, and loads, I say loads. Um, several of the colonists getting killed. You know, it starts on it starts on a dark note. It starts on you know a depressing note, and the theatrical release of the film ends on a fucking horrifically dark note for Daniels, at least. So yep. I I kind of like that. But there's also another. I kind of like it in the film, but it's it's an interesting it's an interesting change because it's another one of those things where it showcases um, how the films change, and I think in this I think the 
I don't know why he revealed it to Daniels, but I know there was some concern in the test screenings on it being revealed to the audience, this switchover. Right. I think originally it was supposed to be much more like it is in the book, um, but there was some confusion over it, so they tried to telegraph it a little bit more. And ultimately, I think it gets telegraphed too much in the film itself. Yes, it's more like, it's like, hey, it's David. Mm. Guess who? I still like that really dark ending. Yeah, it is. I enjoy the ending as well, to be honest. But I do I do like it in the book as well. So I'm equally happy, to be honest. I could take either. It's like I say, you know, it's, it's really fun to experience these differences between the finished, finished thing and what could have been. And there's also another little interesting change on the end. Rather than in the film, David sends a message back to the network saying that everything's cool and they're cracking off to Aragai 6 and you know, one dude's dead, but everybody else... No, most of the crew's dead, but all the colonists are fine and they're cracking on. In the novel, uh, Alan Dean Foster has David open a secure communications link to Weyland yutani uh, headquarters on Earth. So it's sort of like opening a door and suggesting that the whole knowledge that Weyland yutani had of the alien prior to that. Yep. Which... Whether or not you like that kind of theory, it's it's still one of those interesting additions. I mean, did did you like that little bit, or were you not too fussed? It it didn't really fuss me to be honest, because I'm still I'm still waiting for your premonition of David being in the chair coming through. So. I'm Ridley, Ridley, I'm joking. We do not want that. Nobody wants that. Please do not Nobody do it. Wants that. Also. We expect it now, and you like subverting our expectations. Yes, so don't flip do it. it round. <laughs> oh my god, so sad. Yeah. <laughs> do you have any other bits about the book that you'd like to say? I thought Rosenthal's uh, ending was a bit darker, shall we say? It's it's certainly not as quick uh, as the film with how she dies. Because I, th- I think the Neomorph creeps up behind her, doesn't it? But then throws her against a wall and disables her, breaks her spine, and then just like mm-hmm. walks up to a dead slow. It's like I say, it's more, it's more the added things in the book that did it for me. Just like those little added details, uh, that also, just put it over the edge, really. And and also the circumstances leading up to her death are a little different, aren't they? As well, she she finds uh, markings on the walls, and it's like which she's she was. Investigating. Wondering, are, are they markings of the days that David's been there? And she's like, well, I'll have to ask him, but I'm going to go and follow this uh, this passage, basically, with all these markings on it. Oh. Yeah, it is It is different. I, I actually prefer it rather than... I mean, I know, I know we've had this discussion, you're saying it in, the, in the, her character logic in the film, it makes sense. But for me, I've always put it down to Oren being a weak captain. Because really, he should have been like, no, you're not going anywhere. Have you seen what's out there? You should just stay here. Where to me, I, I, I can say, yeah, all right, it's stupid for Rosie to want to go off and do that. But really, the, it all comes down to poor Chris Oram, who's, who's trying his best to be like this, this really good, strong captain, but failing in every decision, he makes a bad call, which gets people killed. It's hmm. a good way of putting it, actually. Captain yeah. fucks everybody over. Yep. <laughs> You were right, Danny. Should never have come here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's everything I had to say on the novelisation, actually. 
I don't want to go into too much. De- I don't want to do a breakdown of, of the novelization. There's, there's lots more in there. Mm. Those were just specific points that I just wanted to pick on that I thought people would find pretty interesting. Like Chevy and I have both said, you know, we prefer the novel over the film because of those additions uh, or those changes. And even if you do like... We, we both liked the film. We've said this. We both liked it, but we the novelization edges it out because it fixes some of those issues. Yeah. And even if you don't necessarily have issues with the film, I will always, always suggest people give these um give these books a go just to just to tickle their interest, just to see what changes have been made and see what could have been. Yeah, because they are fun. So, you know I, f- I feel like a fucking salesman here. Um <laughs> go to Amazon, pick up a copy, um, pick up the audio. No, no don't. Don't. I have, I've not discussed this with you. <laughs> the the audiobook, the, the narrator, oh, he's just awful. He can do David's accent quite well, and he does Walter's accent quite well. Uh, Tennessee is all right, but as soon as he switches to a female voice, it is cringeworthy. <laughs> so, for right, so, so Danny's waking up out of cryo, right? Mm. And then Tennessee's like, oh, Captain Branson's in trouble, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, no! Get it open! It's not that bad, surely. It is that bad. I will let you listen to it next time I see you. I will let you listen to those clips. And then there's another bit as well where they're on the cargo lift. And it's like, Tennessee! Release the loading clamps! It's like, (laughs) god damn it! (laughs) That sounds um, brilliant, question mark. And there's the David thing as well. What do you mean? His, his, so, Orem kills the Neomorph, right? Oh, David going, no, he trusted his, me. No. <laughs> his, no, he's like, no, he trusted me. It's like, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> so cringeworthy. <laughs> okay, so maybe maybe not no, the audio book. <laughs> Unless you subscribe to that thing and get it for free, and you've got lots of traveling to do, then maybe get it. Yeah, like like me, which is the reason why I got it. <laughs> but no, I honestly, I recommend giving it, giving it a listen, giving it a go. Yep. And you're probably sick of listening to us waffling, anyway. And the main attraction, of course, is the Alan Dean Foster interview. Before I do stop waffling. I've got to do the obligatory plugs before I uh, cut to a Nostromo beepy sound effect and then let us get on to the interview itself. So, as always, I'd like to thank everybody who's been writing in lately, letting us know uh, how much they've been enjoying the show, letting us know about any criticisms that they have. We do love hearing from from folk either way. We want to improve, but we also love to hear what we're doing right because who the fuck doesn't love, you know, praise. So... You boost your ego, brother. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So keep it up, guys. You know, please send any feedback in, good, bad. Make sure you're following us on Facebook, Alien vs. Predator Galaxy, vs. as in VS. Dot. On Twitter, we are AVP Galaxy, abbreviated version. And if you're just more interested in the pictures, we do, of course, have an Instagram account, which is Alien vs. Predator Galaxy. And, of course, the website. Don't forget the website, uh, avpgalaxy.net. Make sure you're checking us out regularly for the latest. Um, join in on the forums, join in on the chat with everybody, because we're the best goddamn community around for Alien and Predator. Fact. 
And don't forget your Discord channel as well. Oh yeah, and <laughs> thank you for your assistance in the blog. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> We've <laughs> recently restarted the game night. It takes place fortnightly, switching between you know AVP Classic, AVP Two, AVP Twenty Ten, and Colonial Marines. And to facilitate such a night, we have started a Discord server. I can't exactly give you the invite link over uh, voice, but if you head on over to the forums, go into the general gaming section, there's a stickied topic for the Discord server. Just click invite, the invite link, and you can join in. Join in with the chat on the nights, or just join in with the chat in general. And I think that's everything. So, thanks again, Chevy, for uh, being there when I need you. Yeah, not a problem. Anytime. And everybody, enjoy, uh, enjoy the interview. Thanks. Well, first off, Alan, I just want to thank you for taking the time to actually chat with me today about your work on Alien Covenant. My pleasure. Before we do get into it, though, uh, for those who are listening who, for some strange reason, may not know who you are, could you just give us a quick brief rundown of who you are and what your association with the Alien series is? Okay. Um, my name's Alan Dean Foster. I'm not rundown at all. I did the novelizations of the first three films, was asked to do the novelization of the fourth, Alien Resurrection, and because of some charming experiences I had on Alien 3, declined to do so. I was asked to do the novelization of Alien Covenant, which I've done, and also a intermediary novel set chronologically between Alien Covenant and Prometheus, and that book is completed and at the publisher. Okay, brilliant. Well, thank you very much. The last time you worked on an Alien novel was in the early 90s on the Alien 3 novelization. You know, you had such a bad experience on it that, like you said, you turned down working on Resurrection. It's been right. nearly 25 years, and your name is back on the cover of an Alien novel. How did you end up getting involved um, with, with Covenant? I had worked with uh, the editor at Titan Books, Steve Saffle, who I had actually worked with uh, many, many years earlier on uh, original science fiction, other science fiction of mine at uh, Del Rey Books. And Steve has now been with Titan for quite a while. And because of my connection with Alien from long, long ago and our personal connection, uh, as well as uh, Titan apparently thinking that I was the right person to do this, I was asked if I would be interested in doing Alien Covenant and being a big Rid Ridley Scott fan as well as a big Alien fan. I said, sure. Did you have any trepidations going into it because of the last time, because of Alien 3? Uh, yes, but those were discussed before I came on board. In other words, before I agreed to do it. And uh, Steve was familiar with my, uh, my hesitation because of what had happened on Alien 3, which had nothing to do with him. Mm. But... Um, Basically, it was uh, going to be myself and Titan and Fox and none of the people who had been involved with Alien 3 specifically, certainly not with the book end of it, were going to be involved with Alien Covenant or with the intermediary novel. So on that basis, I said I'd, I'd be delighted to come on board and, and do the books. Now, Alien Covenant served as a sequel to Prometheus. <laughs> Prometheus is a bit of a polarizing film for Alien fans. Uh, you're yourself quite a big Alien fan as well, aren't you? So what did you think of Prometheus, and did that have any bearing on how you approached this job, how you approached Alien Covenant's novel? Certain filmmakers who are very good at what they do can get very ambitious and 
there is this constant tug of war when you want to make an ambitious film, say something like 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, and yet you have to cover the cost of production and hopefully make money for the studio. So in the course of developing project and also actually shooting the film, the director and the writer are constantly torn between wanting to do something of interest and significance and trying to do something commercial. And I think that's the biggest problem that affected Prometheus. On the one hand, you have, uh, you have the creative people trying to tell an interesting human origin slash evolution story that's also part of the alien universe. And then on the other hand, you have them wanting to make a commercial film that people who are not at least a bit interested in evolution or human development, history of human development, uh, but will go see the film. So there's this constant tug of war going on, if you will, between the, the aspirational and the commercial. And making a film that accomplishes both things is extremely difficult to do. And sometimes it results in certain creative decisions that are at odds with each other, shall we say. Mm. And I think that was the biggest problem mm -hmm. with Prometheus. And did any of your opinions on, on how Prometheus turned out sort of influence you while you were working on Alien Covenant? No, that's not my job. My job is to make a readable, enjoyable novel out of the screenplay that I'm given. It's not to go back and try and, you know, retcon things or bring things forward from previous projects into the project, into the novelization that I'm working on at the time. As a fan, I'd love to do that. But as a professional doing a work for hire, that's extremely difficult to do and not really my position. When I saw that you'd be writing the novel for Covenant, I was personally pretty excited, and a lot, I know a lot of other fans were, because we knew you'd be approaching it as not just a job as well, but as a fan yourself. That's right. We knew you'd have the same concerns that, that we would as well, which um, is quite comforting because you, you said that you know your job wasn't to sort of fix the other stuff as well, but you are in a position where you do get to in some manner or other. Well, in the, in the book I'm working on, in this case, Covenant, yes. And what you do is you go through and you try to you fix things that you see as possibly being a, not necessarily a mistake, but that, that can be better. Uh, and you hope that the powers that be who are responsible for the final decision, final cut, if you will, will leave those things in. Uh, all of that material of that nature on Alien 3 was taken out which is the main reason I was so disappointed with Alien 3 and didn't do Resurrection. But a great deal of what I did when I wrote Covenant was left in, and I'm very pleased with the result. Coming at it from that angle, as the man responsible for taking that script and turning it into a novel, and as also a fan of the property, what were your initial thoughts when you finally got that Alien Covenant script on your desk and you read it for the first time? I thought it was pretty good. It's not what I would have written, but they're probably at least... Two million fans out there who would have written something different and probably already have because that's what fans do. But all of these changes and suggestions are done out of love. They're not done, although there may be hateful comments on the web. The changes that fans like to see are done because they love the property and they love the franchise. And as you say, I'm in a position to do some of those things. But I, th I thought the script was good. I would have changed some things here and there, but there probably isn't anybody listening right now who wouldn't have done the same thing. Of course. Do you remember, this is just from a purely movie archaeology point of view, do you remember what the dates of the script you used for the novelization were? Sure don't. 
<laughs> I don't look at them. Fair enough. When, when did you um, when did you receive the script? Then when did you start writing um, Covenant? Uh, I have to look that up for you too. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I'm sorry. Just always working on one or two new projects, and it's hard to keep technical details like that from previous projects in mind. I completely understand. Now that the finished film is out, then have you seen it? Have you seen Alien Covenant? No, I haven't seen it yet. I'm working on. Uh, Another project, actually. Another couple of projects. Also, you have to understand, I live in a small town, and I have a lot of domestic responsibilities. And the days when I would go see two movies a week, um, I'm afraid are past. But I will see the film, of course. So, next thing I was wondering was, how involved with the writing process of Alien Covenant were Fox and Titan? Was it a much freer experience than your last outing? Oh, yeah. It was infinitely better. Um, I couldn't make a stipulation to that effect at the beginning when I started the project, but it was, it was pretty much understood that, uh, I was, whatever I was going to write, the publisher and Fox weren't going to jump all over me like happened with certain people on Alien 3, and it would be deja vu all over again. Uh, and that's pretty much what happened. As far as their involvement, I actually had more involvement from Fox than I had on any of the previous three films. And you can attribute that to the internet and the fact that uh, this is now a long-running franchise and the studio takes more interest in it. So I was able to get, for example, uh, pictures, which I didn't really have from the first three films. I, I, I asked for, you know, can I get some pictures of people in, in uniform so that I could describe the uniforms? Can I get, get pictures of devices and weapons and sets so that I can describe those reasonably accurately so that somebody who picks up the book and reads the book that doesn't, um, for example, read a description of uh, the bridge as being decorated in pink and puce polka dots when, you know, it's not. And that's important to me as a fan. As a writer, I can make all that stuff up. That's easy to invent if I have to. But I have a much greater sense of satisfaction uh, describing something that's in the film in the book as it actually is in the film so fox was extremely helpful in that way so so you actually knew what the uh, neomorph looked like this time rather than the uh, yes for the first alien you you never knew what the creature looked like did you You'd never seen it before writing the book no if you read alien the novelization of the first film there's no description of the alien in it that was tough if, if i remember rightly didn't you also have your face hugger also having a had an eye like in some of the older older um giga concept art yep that's true too but you know things change not just in the script but in the as you know in the course of production you might get a you might get a script that's up to date within 12 hours and three days later on the set, uh, the director and the lead actors decided to change everything in a certain scene. There obviously is nothing I can do about that uh, in the course of writing the novelization. But no, Fox was more involved and was very, the people from Fox were very helpful. And it just makes my job that much easier and makes the book that much more accurate as far as relating to the film. But there will always be changes made in the course of production that don't show up in the book. Which I don't really think was the case with this one, was it? I mean, I suppose you obviously haven't seen the film, so you don't know. But your novel was fairly authentic to what ended up uh, on the screen. There were a few uh, differences, which I was kind of hoping to ask about now, just to see whether they came from you or from the script. Absolutely. Now, there were... Several big issues, say big in quotation marks, that myself and other fans had with the film, which 
I personally felt were rectified in in the novel. So you or the script. The, the first thing is the crew when they venture out onto. The That's surface. me. Okay. I'm sorry. I knew I knew that question was coming because it it relates to Prometheus too. Yes. Yes. Correct. No, that that was me. As as soon as I read the script, and there was you know, and they walked out of the ship in the script, kind of like I guess they walked out of the ship in Prometheus, and nobody checked anything. I immediately thought uh, this needs to be fixed, and it should be a simple fix. And fortunately, we have the presence of a, a non-infectable, at least as far as we know, android on board. And it was a simple matter instead of having the crew. Uh, Fiddle with instruments for 24 hours, just having uh, Walter take a stroll outside and check everything and say, yeah, it's okay. So that was me, yes. I'll take credit for that. <laughs> and that also served to um, sort of bolster some of the confidence of the crew later on, you know, in, in their decisions and how they're handling things like the moats and stuff like that. So that was um, that was a very nice addition. Yeah, it, it's great when you fix one thing and it inadvertently fixes other things down the line. That's nice when it works out that way. Uh, the biggest issue I personally had with the finished film was that David was responsible for the creation of the aliens with a capital A. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Your your novel had the aliens as being an existing thing that was left behind by the engineers that David tinkers with. You or the script. Right. Uh, a little of both in that case. The script was actually fairly ambivalent about that. Right. So it wasn't clear cut. Wasn't specific. Right. So I was kind of left to make my own determination on that basis. Uh, my feeling, I have no idea where where uh, the next film's going to go with this, but I just got the feeling that David was working with material that had been left behind by the engineers, and he's been playing around with it. And you actually have both possibilities open, as I see it, for future development. It is possible that the engineers developed the xenomorph or it is possible that david developed a more advanced version of the xenomorph which you could use uh, to explain how the xenomorph and the neomorph for that matter developed so quickly in this film as opposed to the earlier films in other words the life cycle is greatly speeded up now who's responsible for that is that something the engineers left behind is that something david came up with on his own and uh, the ambiguity of the you know of it all uh, I think still is there. So fans can continue to debate that. I'll continue to debate that myself, actually. And we'll see what happens with the next with the next storyline. Uh, you you mentioned that just now, you literally just mentioned um, about the increased growth rate, which perfectly leads me on to my next question. Because in the novel, you have David specifically mention, you know, in, in, in the narrative, that he had tinkered and this um, the chestburster had a, an increased growth rate. Right. For clarity's sake, because this has come up on on online, did you mean right. the whole alien life cycle had been increased in terms of that iteration of the alien, rather than just the chestburster? Yeah, it had to be. The whole alien life cycle has to be accelerated, or what you see in the film wouldn't be possible. So the story. The storyline and the explanation had to follow what you see in the film. If we had a 24-episode miniseries, uh, you might be able to do a slower alien life cycle. But for that matter, I thought that the alien life cycle, the rate of growth in the very first film, was outrageously fast. 
So extrapolating from that to what we see in Alien Covenant, I don't think is that big a jump. Was that also your your own doing as well then? Just your own explanation. David's line about it being a more advanced model, so you get the accelerated yeah. growth. Of, yeah. Yes, that was. Okay. I, I had to put something in there because obviously the rate of growth is faster in Alien Covenant than it is in the first three Alien films, and you have to say something. I'm very scientifically oriented, even though I have no formal training in science, but I'm very. I take pride in making my science, even if it's a film, uh, as believable as I possibly can when I when I do a novelization. And I felt that that line was necessary. And for what it's worth, Fox left it in there. So nobody there objected to it. There were things they objected to that we took out, but they didn't object to that. So fans can make of that whatever they will. Brilliant. That, that was another one of the, the little things in there that sort of, improved the experience for me it was it was exactly stuff like that which was why i was excited when i heard you were writing this book thanks the the key thing to me one of the very key things about science fiction whether it's film science fiction or written science fiction is doing something it's maintaining the internal logic Hmm. in other words if you're going to have a genie uh push your spaceship then you got to have genies pushing spaceships throughout the entire film and that's not science fiction anymore it's fantasy but at least the logic is the same but you can't have a genie pushing a spaceship in the first half hour and then go to a faster than light drive in the last half hour because that breaks the internal logic so if you're going to have an accelerated rate of growth for your alien uh, which is shown in the first three films uh, and you're going to speed that up for alien covenant in any subsequent films you have to at least explain it, even if it's a one-line explanation, so that you maintain the internal logic. In other words, things don't just happen. There has to be, in science fiction, some kind of an explanation. It may be an outrageous explanation. It may be a, a seemingly stupid explanation, but you have to have an explanation. Yeah. Okay. All right, well, this is the last uh, you or the script question. Now, we're aware that there was a sequence that was cut from Covenant where the alien and... Uh, Neomorph were attacking the crew simultaneously, but the novel right. has a scene where it's slightly different in which the alien and the Neomorphs go for each other. That was in the script. Okay. That was in the script. That sequence in the book is expanded uh, directly from something that was in the script. What, what did you think of the uh, the whole two creatures interacting thing? I think it's a very good way of expanding the alien universe. Uh, one thing that's not addressed in the screenplay and is therefore not addressed in the novel is that you land on a world which is completely devoid of animal life. Hmm. And my thought on that is if you're, if you're going to, I allude to this briefly in the book, but if you're going to have the black goo, shall we say, produce infections that result in xenomorph and neomorph and other morph type character, you know, creatures, and they eventually eliminate themselves uh, through internecine fighting, then you're going to see as uh, more skeletons and more bodies of creatures other than just the engineers. But you don't really have time to talk about this in a two-hour film, so it wasn't shown in the film. But I think that line of thought and development is one that could be profitably expanded upon in the future alien stories. Uh, You start thinking about, well, you know, people can get infected, and engineers can get infected, and obviously everything else on this world, because surely they weren't just engineers on this world, gets infected. Uh, it's a choice Boschian vision of hell that results, and maybe we'll see something like that. And maybe not. What do you think of the whole concept of the black goo, of the accelerant? You know, it's, it was 
fairly ambiguous in Prometheus, but these seem to have settled on, I suppose, more of a straightforward path for Covenant with it. It's it's just there, and I worked with it on that basis, and I had enough other things that I had to, that were in the film more overtly that I had to develop. I just really didn't have time to, if you'll excuse the expression, get into the black goo. And so I'm just I'm just leaving that alone. I, I, I don't want to talk about something that the filmmakers haven't had a chance to talk about because they very well may in the next installment. Okay, that's understandable. Now, you mentioned earlier that there was stuff that you had to take out of the novel. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little more on anything that you, you were unable to do in, in Alien Covenant, anything that had to be took out. No, I can't do that. There is a prohibition in place. I will become infected, shall we say. <laughs> and uh, I, I can't do that. But I can say it wasn't a great deal. There weren't chapters that had to be excised whole. There were just, you know, little things here and there. Mostly things that I, you know, went off in a certain direction with that didn't accord with the, the direction the film was taking. And that's usually when you when you have a good working relationship with the studio, that's usually what happens is it's OK. You invented this or you explained this. But it fits within the canon that we're developing, so we're going to leave it in. But then you go off and do something and say, well, you know, we actually find out that Walter got married before he left Earth to a female android. And you can't do stuff like that because it contradicts uh, contradicts the canon in the storyline. So I wish I could tell you, but I can say that it's not major stuff. Okay, fair enough. What do you consider uh, was the most rewarding part of working on this, this novel? What did you have the most fun with? Most rewarding with? part? Yeah, what did you have the most fun with while working on this? Uh, exploring the characters and getting to know the characters better. And that's true of every novelization, really. Uh, I mean, the characters are at the heart of any successful novel or any successful film. And in a two-hour film, you just don't have time to really get into characters, you know, unless you have two characters. Uh, something like Lupuson's Angel A, for example, which is essentially two characters. Uh, or My Dinner with Andre. You just don't have time to get into the characters in their minds and show their motivations. You know, the, the scene, for example, uh, in the shuttle with mm-hmm. Ledward and the, and the two ladies, uh, that goes by pretty quick in the film because it has to. It's an action sequence and you don't linger on it. Mm-hmm. But I get to show, as the writer of the novelization, because I have unlimited time, uh, what's going on in those people's heads while all this is happening. And well, while that's not a particularly enjoyable sequence to write, uh, if you know, it's enjoyable in the sense that you can actually show what's going through people's minds. It can be depressing for a writer. Most writers reflect what their characters are feeling as the writer is writing. And if most of your characters are getting deaded, it can be kind of depressing sometimes, especially if you get to like the characters. It's quite emotionally intensive in that fashion. That's it. On the flip side of that, then, what was the most challenging aspects of this particular job? Anything that gave you grief? Well, basically, well, two things, really. What I just said, which was developing all of these really what I thought were interesting, nice, likable people, and then seeing them destroyed one by one. That was one thing. And the other thing was, uh, it was it was difficult to fix some of the scientific stuff. And the most disappointing thing for me is when I can't fix it, because it's such a large part of story that to fix it would change the story. And I know I can't do that for reasons I just enumerated. I, I don't think, let's see, uh, do they still have the gigantic uh, energy sails at the beginning of the film? They do, yes. Yeah. The ship, yes. Your explanation of that was different. Well, in terms of like the accident? Yes, it had to be. Were you annoyed by the neutrino thing? Well, it's just, again, it goes back to the whole science thing. And it, it reminded me somewhat of Disney's, you know, Treasure Island in space, Treasure Planet. 
Yeah. You just you just don't have it just doesn't work scientifically. It works beautifully visually. It works fine in a film. And I've talked to a number of directors who've done things like this. Shots that are or sequences that are obviously impossible from a scientific standpoint, but that work extremely well in the film, and so they leave it in for that reason. And I understand that. But you know, as somebody who really takes pride in their science, those are the things that I like to fix. And when I can't fix them, uh, the way I would like to fix them, then it's disappointing. You just have to kind of do the best you can, which is what I did with that sequence, and move on. So are you talking in terms of the accident itself or the, or the solar sail concept? The solar sail concept, basically. I mean, it, it's fairly – you're in deep space, and you're just, you're just not going to get enough energy, no matter how big your sails are, to move at any kind of reasonable speed to take you between solar systems. It's just not possible, and you can't fix that unless you completely redesign your spaceship, which I couldn't do, obviously, because it was in the film, but it was very pretty. So from a cinematic standpoint, that might have been a better way to go than something that would have been entirely scientific. If I remember rightly, didn't you expand on it a little bit in terms of it not being so much a solar sail as just a general sort of energy collector type situation? Yeah, thank goodness for dark energy. I mean, nobody's seen it, and, but we know it's there, and it, it's a great uh, deus ex machina for a situation like that. Well, it collects dark energy, and it's powered that way, and, you know, it's that sort of thing works better for me than, you know, than something like uh, solar energy. But it's a, it's a minor point, really, unless you're particularly into the science, and you can't obsess over things like that uh, as a filmmaker, or you'll never get your film made. There are other things that bother me too, but I understand why they're done. For example, we're several hundred years in the future and people are still using projectile weapons, still shooting bullets. And one would think that that far in the future, the technology of armaments would have advanced to the point to where, well, you, you see where I'm going with all this. Yeah. yeah. I'm with you. It's like, it's like keyboards on starships. It's like, well, our wrong, you know, everybody on the enterprise is still sitting around typing commands in, and that's not going to be the case, assuming we're still around working on ships in a couple of hundred years. What you'll do is you'll talk to the ship's computer, or you'll have something like a medieval snood or smaller that fits on your head, and your thoughts will go directly to the computer, and the computer's thoughts, if you will, will come directly back to you. But that would make for a very dull bridge sequence where everybody's just sitting around <laughs> thinking. I suppose you'd still want the um, the tactile input from a redundancy point of view as well, though, you know, just in case. Well, there's redundancy and then there's, you know, what will be redundancy uh, qualified in a couple of hundred years? You know, are we still, for example, if you were coming forward in time from, say, the early 20th century, would you still need to carry around a box of incandescent light bulbs because you're afraid your LEDs might go out? Fair point. One thing that was noticeably absent from the novel was any mention of events in between Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Now, there was a short sequence in the film and there was a, a prologue that was um, released online leading up to the film uh, that followed the same sort of scenes. Now, I'd assume this was because your prequel novel Origins would explore that period but judging from the synopsis that Titan sent us over recently, that's not the case? Well, it is and it isn't. It does take place between Prometheus and Covenant. It does lead the events in the book, tentatively titled Alien Origins, do lead directly up to the departure uh, of the Covenant from Earth. Uh, but beyond that, I really can't go into detail for obvious reasons. Sorry, I should have clarified. I was... Um... 
thinking more along the lines of David and Shaw's activities in between the films. I'm sorry I can't comment. They'll come and get me. <laughs> fair, fair enough. And rightly so. So no hint as to whether that's going to show up in Origins at all? I I can't comment one way at all. I, Comey can talk about that more than I can. So while you can't talk about Origins much, I did want to ask you just a couple of roundabout questions, uh, general questions regarding it. And the first of which was just how how did the prequel project come to be? Was that something Titan and Fox pitched to you, or was that something that you thought needed to be made? No, it was it was a two book uh, concept from the beginning. The idea was that I'd do the novelization and then write this original novel. But it was a little nebulous at the beginning as to whether it would be a prequel novel or a sequel novel. Yeah, it was initially reported as a sequel on um, on Amazon, if I remember right. Right. Very early on in the decision-making process, it was decided that it couldn't possibly be a sequel because if the material in the book was going to become canon in any way, then that would constrict the filmmakers on certain things they might want to do in the third film. Right. And neither Titan nor Fox wanted that situation to eventuate, so it became uh, it was a prequel novel instead of a sequel. I suppose you can't talk about any of the ideas that were being explored if it would be a sequel? Oh, hell no. <laughs> They'd shoot me if I didn't ask. That's all right. I did have other ideas for for the prequel and for other prequels, and maybe one of those or two of those will materialize one of these days. Uh, a lot depends on what the third screenplay looks, the screenplay for the third film looks like, mm. because you know this bit, prequels are very difficult to do, and it's much easier to do sequels. But to do a prequel in advance that doesn't counteract something that's going to be a sequel gets very complicated trying to keep everything straight and keep everybody in tune, and so just one book at a time. (laughs) Sounds like a motto. Now, that sort of ties into what I was going to ask next, which was just that now that you've had a chance to write an original Alien story, um, would you be interested in coming back and working with Titan on a new one, whether it was a film, sequel, prequel, or a completely new, original, unrelated to the film's Alien story? Oh, sure, especially if they say what you do is going to be canon, and then I feel you know, that's that's a fan's dream. You know, you write something, and it becomes actually part of the actual franchise. But it's also a considerable responsibility. And again, you have to be prepared for some for the people who are in control of the storyline to come back and say, no, you can't do that because. But hope springs eternal. Is that something that's been talked about at all, the possibility of coming back? Not yet. I think it's premature. They, you know, box off. They haven't decided uh, exactly what they want to do for the third film yet. The first prequel novel hasn't come out. Obviously, the publisher will want to see how well that does. Uh, speaking from a from a publisher's standpoint, not a fan standpoint. Fans would be delighted, I'm sure, to see a book a year between, the, you know, in the ten year span between Prometheus and Alien, uh, and Alien Covenant, that sort of thing. But uh, you can't make those kinds of commercial decisions. You can make fanish decisions, but not commercial decisions. Again, it has to be one step at a time. Right. Well, that's actually everything from me personally, but I do have just a couple of questions from members of the Alien vs. Predator Galaxy community. Sure thing. First up is uh, Xenomorph. He asks if the dreaming opening of the novelization after the prologue was an intentional callback to the way you opened the other three novels outside of the films actually opening like that. Absolutely. I, even before I started, you know, writing the book, I decided I was going to try and do something to tie them in thematically in some small way to the first three books. 
and make that 25-year jump seem as small as possible. Obviously, I couldn't do very much. I couldn't invent a whole new opening for, you know, for essentially film and put that in the book. But I was able to slip that little bit in there. And I thought that I thought that was a fun touch. That was a fan touch. I mean, it made sense story-wise, but from a fanish standpoint, that was fun to do. Okay, thank you. Echo Base would like to know if, while writing Covenant, there was any particular character that you sort of zeroed in on and you thought needed that little bit more focus so that, you know, the reader would be able to get a better grip on them. Anybody who needed better development? Well, all of the all of the subsidiary characters, if I can say subsidiary, they all needed more development. That was one of the big problems with Alien 3 was essentially, except for the main characters, you know, Ripley and a, and a couple of others, every, everybody else on that convict planet was alien chow. You didn't get to know them as human beings or individuals at all. Uh, and you face that problem again because you only have two hours in the movie. So characters who I found intriguing in the script page, but who the scriptwriter uh, Josh Grogan just didn't have time to expand upon in the film, like Tennessee. I mean, they all die, but still, Tennessee I was particularly taken with, and I couldn't do as much with the young couple who were pilots on the ship. And if I can digress on that question for a minute, you see, that's another problem with being entirely scientifically accurate versus something that's cinematically interesting. Mother runs the ship, and the people are backup. You don't need pilots technically on a ship like that. But again, you'd have a very you'd have an empty bridge, and that where would that go from a cinematic standpoint? But all of the other minor characters, uh, I had a lot more fun developing. Uh, it depends on your definition of minor. I was able to explore. I thought the character of Orem was very interesting. You have the backup captain of the you know colony ship, starship, who has to take command. Always a difficult position for someone to be put in. Uh, who is a scientist professionally, mm. but is a very religious person. It's a weird contradiction, isn't it? Yes, and it, well, it usually is treated that way, but it wasn't necessarily treated that way in the film. I thought well, that was one of the most interesting things from a character standpoint in the entire film, and I would attribute that directly to Ripley, uh, Ripley. <laughs> Ridley, <laughs> Freudian slip to Ridley Scott there, because I, I think I have some idea of his interest in that in that area. Uh, that was an interesting character to play with, and uh, all all of the minor characters, developing them, all of the privates and their motivations, and showing that they didn't act like idiots, uh, that there were reasons behind what they did. I had a lot more a lot more fun with that, and well, that was a lot more interesting to play around with than somebody like Daniels, for example, who is much more thoroughly developed in the film. Hmm. Going back to the seventies for this this last uh, one. Dr. Ash has a question relating to Alien, your scientific um, sort of point of view, and the egg morphing scene. He wants to know what you thought the Alien did to Brett and Dallas to achieve that egg morph. Well, it was pretty obvious to me from the screenplay and, and, and you know, from the film. And this is, the, the, you know, a good example of the problem of keeping everything consistent throughout a, a series of films. Uh, is basically that uh, they had been cocooned and implanted with alien eggs or seeds or whatever you wanted so that they would serve as food for the young alien. This business of the, you know, the alien uh, growing from a tiny toothy larvae into a, you know, a giant marauding creature in a very short space of time with no obvious intake of food or energy. 
is just something that's glossed, glossed over in all the films, really. Mm. Uh, and I suppose it has to be. You just say, well, it's an alien biological accomplishment and we don't know how it works. But being interested in science, I kind of have to know how it works and want to know how it works. And so I saw that sequence is showing how at least the beginnings of the alien had food to develop with. The whole thing being derived from the tarantula hawk wasp, uh, paralyzing tarantulas and dragging them into a burrow so that the, the young wasp eggs would hatch on the paralyzed tarantula and feed on them, which is a horrible, horrible little bit of charming mother nature that, you know, it doesn't show up on kitty shows too much. Uh, nature can be really, really vicious. I never asked. I always meant to ask Dan O'Bannon if that's where he got that idea for the alien and the egg and f impregnating people and developing inside a person from the beginning. I can tell you where he got that from. Well, tell me. Just give me two seconds. Okay. It, it came from a film he'd seen, if I remember rightly. Where is it? It was a combination of a film and real life. Right. Okay, here. So there's a fella called uh, Johnny Kennedy, uh, Valaquin is his screen name, and he runs a pretty kick-ass blog called Strange Shapes, and it's a really, really good in-depth sort of um, look at the making of Alien, Aliens, and Alien 3. He's done shit-tons of research into all of this stuff, so he's a massive, he's a really good resource for this kind of thing. And he literally yesterday was talking about this on the forums, so that's why it was right there in my mind. And uh, we were talking about the Queen um, and the, you know, the life cycle stuff. And he says that uh, O'Bannon's life cycle was largely lift from a film called They Bite, with some um, embellishments. And O'Bannon himself had also said that it was inspired by the tarantula hawk wasp using caterpillar cocoons. And a creature I have no idea how to pronounce. Um, Ichnuman? Ichnuman? Oh, the Ichnuman wasp, yes. Yeah, there you go. Same idea. Okay, well, that, that makes perfect sense then. And you know, it, it, again, it's scientifically, it, it makes a lot more sense to have a queen alien, for example, laying eggs and then workers are produced and then you know, maybe there's they're sort of uh, transgender and they can you know, lay eggs too and you, that, uh, you can work all of that out. I always did wonder how the queen alien, alien managed to produce an endless series of eggs with no obvious intake of food, not that she was overweight. But, you know, these, these things stick in your mind. By the way, just as a funny little aside, uh, we live in central Arizona, and tarantula hawks are very prevalent here. They feed on nectar and the flowers in our backyard, and they're extraordinarily beautiful creatures. They're about three, four inches long, and according to a professor who made a chart of these things, have the second most powerful sting uh, in the natural kingdom, which I've never been tempted to try out myself. I can't fault you for that. That's nasty. No, but they're beautiful. They're, you know, deep purple and red wings, and really, really be. They're as big as hummingbirds. They're beautiful creatures. Uh, for some reason, my my wife doesn't like me to follow them around and look at them. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm a bit of a. Uh, it's probably probably why I. I've always sort of found the aliens so fascinating in terms of being terrifying is I'm not terribly big fan of insects. So I think I'd be with your wife on that. It's not just that. It's humans have a visceral fear since we so thoroughly dominate the planet of anything that's left that feeds on us. I mean, that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to feed on everything else. And the idea that there's the occasional shark 
or the occasional crocodile or the occasional parasite that lives off us is something that mentally we just have a real hard time dealing with. Subconsciously. And I think the alien films tap into that very deeply. Mm. That's one of the things that makes it really effective, I think. A lot of, of, a, lot of a lot of the subtext in those films are just you don't even notice them, do you? And it just works on such a such an effective level. Yeah, well, that's what Giger's art did from the very beginning. Uh, he really was uh, really tapped into something deep in the human subconscious that uh, people react viscerally to. No pun intended. Well, one final one from me then before we disappear, and it is and it is if you were given free reign to tell any alien story you wanted, what would you do? Oh gosh. Uh... The ultimate fanish question, I guess. Of course. Well, I'd like to know why the engineers really developed the aliens. I mean, why would you produce something like that? There has to be a reason for it other than just casual biological interest. I'd like to tell that story. It would be the conclusion of the whole series, essentially. But uh, uh, that would be that would be fun to work out, as thousands of fans have already done on their own. Well, this happened or this was the reason or that was the reason. But bringing all these loose ends together into a coherent finale, that would be fun to do. And hopefully Ridley will uh, give us something nice and tidy at the end of it as well. We will see. Well, thank you again for taking the time to answer our questions. And before we do sign off, is there anything that you'd like to say that I haven't given you the opportunity to put across while we've been chatting? Uh, no, not really. I think I think you and the, uh, the fans who wrote in uh, covered it pretty thoroughly. I'm sure people will have other questions now as a result of the answers to these questions, but that's what makes these things so much fun. Fair enough. Thank you very much. This is Aaron Percival. And this is Alan Dean Foster signing off.